0: If you have your Bible with you guys, we're going to be in chapter 4 and 5 tonight, continuing where we left off of last week. So I hope that you remember chapter 5 is a song of deliverance, a song of praise based off of the events that were recorded in chapter 4. These are the events that God had brought to pass, and God and God's people aren't ashamed of them. These are events that we... Christians living about 3,000 years later than when it happened in 2020 should also be praising God for. His holy justice is on display. His covenant faithfulness is in view. He is preserving the nation of Israel in these passages. And because of his covenant promise to Abraham, so this is even God's grace that's in view. Because Israel didn't deserve to be rescued. And this is also God preserving his promise in the gospel as well because by keeping Israel in existence here, the path that would bring the the Messiah uh, stays intact. So this is a song that teaches us to praise God, among a few other things as well. And We've seen how the song praised God for his might and for his victory uh, that he provided. Last week, we considered how the song praised the willing Israelites for going along in that battle. And then it also rebuked and even cursed those Israelites that didn't want anything to do with them. And that weird uh, people group, the Miraz, who we don't know anything about because of the curse that was pronounced on them. And we took from the te- text last time an understanding about Armageddon, how it was how it actually means that God will provide victory for those who are counted righteous in Christ, no matter what age they live in. And we talked about the way people choose to preserve their life, and that comes often at great cost. And then also we talked about how people often use excuses, which end up making them uh, being prevented from being faithful to the Lord. So tonight we're going to consider one last observation from our passage in chapter 5. We, don't have, we didn't have sufficient time to get to it last week, but this one thing is something that maybe you might have noticed as we've been reading. Um, ha, the question that comes from this text is, how, can we, how do we say that God was providentially in control over the events in chapter 4, even ordaining them and promising that they would happen the way they did? And then we read in chapter 5, of how those who went willingly into battle were praised and those who didn't were rebuked and cursed. And so if you're listening, if you're, if you're thinking critically, a question about the nature of God's sovereignty, and which includes his providential workings, and its relationship to our responsibility, or in other words, our free will, should be surfacing in your mind. How do these things work together? God has brought these things to pass, and yet here we have people being praised or, or rebuked for not taking part in it. But God was ordaining all these things to happen, as we read. So, how do they come together? That means uh, this: the fact that these people were praised or rebuked, despite God's, you know, prophetic announcement of what was going to happen. That means that how we respond in life matters. God's sovereignty doesn't cancel that out. It, in fact, it makes it all the more meaningful. And so the, these um, these things that we're going to talk about are difficult, but we're going to spend a couple of weeks on it. we will talk about it tonight, and then we'll finish it up next week, which really isn't that much time to be spending on such a difficult topic, but hopefully it'll serve to be helpful. So let's read the word again, then after we'll pray. We're just going to read the same text that we read last time um, because that's Primarily what we're we're building off of since we're here. So the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 11, the, the last part of verse 11, 11d in Judges chapter 5. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in a song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Macher marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben they, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of the heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came. They fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver from heaven. The stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs and with galloping, galloping of, ste- of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Cursed its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So that ends the reading of God's holy inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding. Let's ask him to do that in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for saving it for us, for preserving it, and we thank you for this song that you put on the heart of Deborah and the people of Israel there, Lord, this song that tells of your mighty deeds and gives insight into how it is that... We should live in light of who you are. Give us understanding, Lord, as we approach this topic. We pray that we be faithful to your word and that you would help us to grow in our understanding that Christ might be exalted in our lives. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so since we were pressed for time, especially tonight, um, there's no need to recap the things that we talked about last week. Uh, I want to use our time as short as it is to really dig into this matter of God's providence and man's responsibility here in this passage. And this is a a doctrinal topic, you guys, and we, we need to be doctrinal. We need to be Christians who know doctrine. We can't afford to be ignorant. We need to know what we believe, what the Bible teaches. We need to know it. And really, that's all that doctrine is. It is teaching. It simply means teaching or a set of beliefs. So when we say Christian doctrine, we're speaking about a specific, specific Christian teachings. And we need to be clear about Christian doctrine because doctrine is, is practical. It informs how we live. It's not just something to like have in our minds and to just think about when you're reading a book. It, it, really, having right doctrine helps you to live the Christian life. Uh, studying doctrine helps us to be grounded in the faith and helps us to overcome the doubts that arise with our faith. And so you see, studying doctrine helps you to be able to answer questions, questions that come up in your, in your life, in your experience, in the lives of other people as well. So this topic is certainly one that brings up questions in the life of believers. Providence slash sovereignty and man's responsibility. And if you've never really questioned how these things work together, I promise you at some point you will. If you're going to be a serious student of the scriptures, if you're going to be, if you're going to seriously take uh if you're going to take serious your discipleship, I should say, uh, you'll you'll seek to understand these matters, how it is that they are reconciled, or not that we need to reconcile them, even the Bible just teaches them plainly, uh, even if you're only able to partially understand it. Pastor and teacher James Montgomery Boyce said this about these doctrines. He said there is probably no point at which the Christian doctrine of God comes more into conflict with contemporary worldviews than in the matter of God's providence. Do you know what he means by that? No. What he means by that is that, is that people who are not saved, that this understanding of God's providence is something that they just can't comprehend. That they, don't, they, they, they run into it and they, it's like hitting a wall. They, they can't deal with it. So it's in conflict with their worldview to have a God who is providentially working his, um, his will to be done. So we'll define all these things here in a moment. So hopefully what we'll cover tonight will be helpful for you as you continue to think of these matters or begin to think of them for the very first time even. Because as Dr. Boyce said, the worldview of those outside of the church, they really do hate the sovereignty of God. So the first thing we should do is consider the example in the text, and in doing so, we'll define some terms, and then I'll make a short case for understanding this, these doctrines just in our passages that we have here tonight. So look with me in chapter 4 of Judges. just It might be on the same page or the page before where we were just at. And we're just going to read a couple. Not We're not going to read a whole lot out of Judges 4 because we've already went over this. But look at verse 6. There we read, she, And so she is Deborah. Uh, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and and the people of Zebulun, and I, I as God, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Okay, so you're seeing the providence of God there, the sovereignty. God is going to make this happen. It hasn't happened yet, but he's saying, do this. This is what will happen. It goes on to say in verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. So we see some response from people, right? People choosing. Then it says, nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So again, God is saying what's going to happen before it's even happened. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now if you jump down to verse 15 in chapter 4, it says, And the Lord routed, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Uh, We could also have looked at how Jael got the victory, like God promised as well, for further evidence of God's sovereignty and providence. But we notice here that the Lord did what he said he was going to do, right? So that's God's sovereignty and his providence here on display. It's an example of it. But what do we mean when we say sovereignty and providence? So first let's do some basic definitions. When we say that God is sovereign, we don't mean what is typically thought of in societies these days. Because you might hear like, oh well, you know, so and so is a sovereign nation, or so and so is is a sovereign, like a person could be a sovereign. And usually when people speak of that, they're talking about a king or a ruler, someone who has um, like a monarch especially. They're people too who are considered to have like the greatest power and in influence in their area. But when we say that God is sovereign, we mean much more than that. Now certainly, God is a king. There's no doubting that. He's a ruler. Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Psalm 47, 8 says that God reigns. That, that tells us he's, he's a king, right? That he's in charge if he's reigning. Matthew 28, 19 says that all authority in heaven and on earth under, under heaven and on earth, has been given to, to Jesus. It belongs to him. So certainly God is a king and a ruler. But when we say that God is sovereign, we also mean that he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And think about the gravity of that statement. An earthly king can't say that. Everything that God wants to do, he does. There's some things he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do that, right? But everything that he does want to do, he does. Daniel 2.21 and Romans 13 tells us that he sets up kings and he, remo- and he removes them. He, in other words, he, he orchestrates kingdoms and then he causes them to fall to the wayside. You know, we, we hope and we pray that America is not falling to the wayside right now. Lamentations 3.37 says, Whatever comes to pass, he, meaning God, has commanded it whatever comes to pass, he has commanded it lamentations three thirty seven ephesians one eleven says he works all things according to the counsel of his will whatever so whatever comes to pass he's commanded it he, he works all things according to the counsel of his will, so prophecy would be absolutely meaningless if God was not sovereign do do you see that that prophecy would it would be like a big maybe if God was not actually sovereign. Do you, do you agree with that? Uh, there are countless things that could have gone wrong, for example, that would have made the prophecy in the text from Deborah fail to come to pass. What if there was a big virus outbreak or something and all of Israel got sick and then Barak's, army, or Barak's armies, you know, they would have lost against Sisera? What if there was a, a weather event that, you know, God was, wasn't in control of that? There was a weather event. The weather event helped Israel. But what if that didn't happen? So, so it, it, the prophecy wouldn't mean anything if God wasn't actually sovereign. You wouldn't be able to trust any uh, prophet of God at all. Uh, so, many, so many options as to what could have messed it up. R.C. Sprawl famously said this. He said, If there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Let me say that again. He says, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. He's right, of course. See, if there's, I mean, it sounds insignificant, but one single molecule, if that molecule hits into something, affects something, and then that affects something else, then you have this big chain effect. So God, if he, we're saying he's sovereign, we're saying it's over everything. It's meticulous. His, his role is total. It's complete. Yeah, that's right. Nobody can be, God is, he's unmatched in his sovereignty. He's, there can't be two that are the same in that regard. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. So it means for God to be in complete control of everything that it has ever or will ever happen. It's meticulous, meaning that it covers every detail. Now, providence is closely related to sovereignty, but it's not the same thing. It's it's different. Sovereignty proclaims that God is in control of everything. When we talk about God's providence, what we're talking about is the way that God controls everything. So sovereignty is a declaration that God is in control. Providence is the way that it happens. It's the way that God orchestrates his sovereign will. It's his specific way of unfolding all of the events that happen. Not just good events, mind you. Uh, When your prayer is answered, and when something works out the way you prayed it would, that is the providence of God. Sometimes you hear Christians say, oh, you know, thank the Lord for his providence because of this good thing that it worked out that way. But also, when we say that God is sovereign and he's controlled everything, it also means that when things don't work out the way that we would want, that's also the providence of God. When Job was offered to Satan to be tempted, that which Satan was allowed to do and not allowed to do, all the providence of God. Right. Remember, Satan could do this, he could touch his family, his livestock, his wealth, but he can't um, hurt Job's body. And the second time, he could hurt Job's body, but he can't kill him. Right? So there's, it's all God's providence. If we had um, more time, we'd go into the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in detail, but since we don't have a lot of time, we're just going to look at a couple of the points that this confession makes. It's a statement of faith. Uh, I remember in seminary, I had to, like, make my own statement of faith, and I I made it a point to not try to be creative. I was like, I'm just going to be in agreement with these other brothers and sisters because we don't—that's important. You want to have unity as a Christian. You're here on Sunday. Pastor Nick was talking about the importance of not being divided and um, having unity. So anyway, the statement of faith is just saying, like, a declaration of what you believe. Well, a bunch of Baptists in the 17th century uh, put together a statement that I think is still— it's good. It's biblical. It could still be used today. And so it says a lot about the providence of God. So I'm just going to read a couple articles from it. Article 7 first, which is the last one in it. But it says, The providence of God in a general way includes all creatures, but in a special way it takes care of His church and arranges all things to its good. Okay, so of, providence deals with everything, but in a special way with the church or the people of God. God's, and there's a passage we'll look at later that'll, I think, make that clear. But the first article in chapter five, so you can look at this in your own time, the sixteen eighty nine London Baptist Confession of Faith, is Chapter five in there. So the first article in Chapter five says this God, the good creator of all things, and his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge, meaning that he knows everything. And the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom, his power, his justice, and infinite goodness and mercy. Okay? And then the second article says this. It says, "...all things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance." or outside of God's providence. You know, sometimes we say, oh, that was lucky. Not from God's point of view, right? Nothing happens by chance. It's God's providence. Then lastly, he says, yet by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or in response to other causes. So God is the first cause. People, other things, are the second cause or other causes. We'll make more sense of that. I know that's, difficult, especially if you're hearing something like that for the first time, but we're gonna, that's why we're going to go another week with this topic to try to make more sense of it. So that's providence. It is God bringing about the events that happen in accord with his sovereign will, his purposes. God is the first cause. People and other things, perhaps like weather, for example, are known as second causes when we think of providence. And we'll again, we'll get more on that later in, in next week as well too. So we've seen sovereignty and providence on display in the text and how God said this is what's going to happen through the prophet and then how he brought it to actually happen and pass. But we also notice human responsibility. In the, in the same chapters we read, there is human responsibility, human choice in chapter 4 and then also in chapter 5, which we read at the start of our night. We see that the people involved did something. God arranged the events to to occur just like the 1689 LBC affirmed. And then he says that the events happened via a second cause. In this case, the actions of the people. Remember, the Lord took Sisera by the edge of the sword. Well, who was holding the sword? The people, right? The people of Israel. It wasn't, you know, God himself out there. And so... Barak had to choose and had to listen to Deborah, and they had to go. Uh, the captive Israelites that Barak had assembled—they were holding the swords. They had a choice. Even more, in chapter five, even those, even these events happened. Even though these events happened by the sovereign decree of God or His plan, God's providence ordered the events with the exact right players to bring about God's will, and the people's responsibility is still nevertheless highlighted in the narrative especially in chapter 5. They're highlighted by either being praised for going or by being rebuked or cursed for not being willing to go to battle. So that tells us that even though God is in control of all things and ordering the events of the days according to his wise counsel, the actions of people matter. What we do or what we don't do still matters, even though we say God is sovereign, even though we confess what the scriptures say and say that God is sovereign in control of all things. It doesn't mean our actions don't matter. We're not fatalists. We can't simply affirm that God is sovereign and then just live like nothing matters, like our actions don't matter because God is sovereign. And on the other end, we can't live like our actions are the final determining matter and then somehow try to wiggle out of the fact that God is, in fact, sovereign. Because that's what people ultimately do. They try to say, okay, well, since I have to make this choice, then that must mean God's not actually sovereign. Well, when we do that, we go against the, what this, the text is telling us. So our actions matter. What you do matters. And at the same time, we joyfully acknowledge that God is the one who's in control, that he's accomplishing his will. And that encourages us to have faith. It emboldens us who are united to Christ to act in a way that glorifies God, because we know that God is bringing about the events that happen for two things, primarily his glory and secondly for our good. You can get behind that, I hope. Like That's something that you can confess and be happy about. When you think of the fact that God is sovereign and that we have a, a, a choice to make in these things, that our choice doesn't override God's sovereignty, but our choice flows out of his sovereignty, that knowing that God in doing things is doing it for his glory and then also for our good, it helps us to have confidence in these, in these two doctrines. And That's exactly what the Apostle Paul means in Romans 8 when he says in Romans 8, 28, He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, everything happens according to God's will and his counsel. And for those who love God, it's happening to us for our good, no matter what it is. And that's not always easy to, to accept, especially when it first happens. But again, if we want to be Christians who are saturated in the word, not depending upon our feelings, not depending upon what the world tells us, but what God's word tells us. And that's what it tells us. And we could have faith and confidence that it's true. Because think about, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're talking about this next week. But think about the death of Christ. Right? Good came out of that. So we could trust God when He says that all things are working together for good. So God works all things together. He's sovereign using his providence for good. Of those who love him, for those who are saved, for those who have repented of their sin and confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that he was victorious over their sin. For those of us who trust God, everything that happens, God is working it toward our good. And so we act in faith and obedience, knowing that God is sovereign. And isn't that what we've already established with chapter four and five of Judges? That this is a song of praise. And we, even though we live 3,000 years roughly after these events took place, they are events that were done for us to bring about a Savior, the Savior. That deliverance that was had here, prefigured, it was a type of the ultimate deliverance that God provides for His people over sin and judgment in Christ. The land that they won back here, where they were captives in, and now they were free in the land after this deliverance. That was a type of the promised new heavens and the new earth. Again, these are events that we can rejoice over and not just simply read as some like dry history because God, in a very real way, brought them about for us just as much as he brought them about for the nation of Israel when they actually occurred in time. So praise God for his sovereignty and in faith choose to live in a way that denies yourself and seeks to glorify God because as you see in the text, your choices matter. Right, People were praised for being willing. People were rebuked for not being willing. Now, next week, instead of moving on to the next verses of chapter 5, we're going to take one more week and consider some other texts in the Bible that that lay out this um, relationship between God's providential uh, and, and His sovereignty and His providence and then also man's responsibility. Or, and we'll look specifically at the concept of the free will as well too. And so, because this... This text here, we see it, but it's a little bit more obscure. But there are other places in the Bible where it's more clear. And so I want you to see it more clearly. And plus, the more times you're exposed to it, you'll be able to hopefully see it for yourself. And not just believe it because I'm telling you that's what it is, but believe it because that's what you see there in the text. And so these are tough doctrines. I get that. As Boyce said, though, the worldview that is supported by the world is most at odds with God's providence. So hopefully, you know, a little bit more time considering these things will help you to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you whenever this discussion comes to you. Because eventually, at some point, again, if you're living for Christ, if you're being vocal about your faith, at some point, odds are pretty high that you'll you'll come into this sort of a, a conflict with someone who doesn't believe or believes differently. We have to explain how it is that God is truly sovereign and yet your actions still matter. So let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for this time and your word. We thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control of all things, and that gives us great joy knowing that nothing can happen to us outside of your plan. We pray even then that you'd help us to believe what is said in Romans 8, 28, that you're working all things together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I know... Lord, that we are often weak and, and lack a great faith. And so when trials come upon us, we moan and we complain and we grumble. But help us to even see, Lord, even in light of the things that happen to us that we don't like, that even in these things, you are somehow in your providential control, working them to our good. You have proved beyond a shadow of a doubt of your great love in sending Christ, how it is that he died for us and was resurrected for our justification. May we be, sa- be satisfied in you and you alone, Lord. May we be, we be grateful to you for all that you provide for us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.